This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington, May 29, 2016. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, welcome. My name is Sam, and we're going to be going through the book of Genesis. So if you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 13, we are in uh, the second of four different sections of Genesis. The first was chapters 1 through 11. The second will be chapters 12 through 24, uh, really about the man named Abram. Uh, then the next section we will do uh, uh, later, uh, actually next uh, year most likely, uh, will be Jacob uh, and his family, and then eventually the story of Joseph. But right now, we are spending the next several months on uh, a man named Abram, soon to be called Abraham. And Abram is known as, in the church, in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, as really the father of faith, the father of Christian faith. And before... Uh, Abram was uh, the paragon or the example of faith for us. It's important to remember that Abram was little more than an idolatrous pagan who worshipped false gods uh, like everyone else really uh, in the land that he originally lived in. But by grace, God comes to him and God chooses Abram, not because something special in him, but because God chooses to love this guy and his family. And he promises that if he will leave his country, if he will leave his family, if he will leave everything he knows and go to a land that he has never seen, that God will bless him and protect him and provide for him and make his name great and build into him, well, his family into a great nation. And through that nation, he will bless the world. It's a pretty awesome promise. It's a pretty unbelievable promise because it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's pretty difficult. It's going on a journey to a place where he's never seen, and Abram believes. He trusts God's promises, and he goes to Canaan. We see that at the beginning of chapter 12. And we see that in the very beginning, when we are introduced to Abram, he trusted in what God said more than in what he could see, which is pretty much the struggle of the Christian life. To trust what God says, opposed to what we see with our eyes. But his obedience to what God said leads him into a land that goes into an unexpected famine. So think about this. His obedience makes things worse, right? He's like, I'm going to make you great, and now suddenly he's not able to eat. And he's looking around going, what happened? I did it right. I obeyed God. I did what he said. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that God often does that. Moses is a great example. He was an 80-year-old fugitive turned shepherd, told go back to Egypt, walk into the leader of the greatest nation in the world of time, and tell him to let my people go, I'm with you. Okay, so he goes, says, God said, let my people go. He says, I don't know this God, and because you asked me that, I'm going to make it twice as hard for your people. What? Then he walks out, and his people are now being twice, worked twice as hard, enslaved in a, in a way that's twice as difficult. They're like, what did you do? What did you say to him? And he's like, I just said what God told me to say, and things got worse. And so Abram goes into the land, does what he is told, and 
things get worse, which honestly is the Christian faith at times. When famine came, he looked around and he understandably started to trust more what he could see beyond what he had heard. He began to trust in what he felt, what he experienced, what he predicted was going to happen. Wow, if I stay here, this is going to happen or this is going to happen. I'm supposed to take care of these people. I'm supposed to lead this like, what do I do? And we can understand why he began to maybe trust in what he could see now and what he felt more than what he had heard. He had faithfully gone up to what God calls the promised land. But then, as we see Genesis 12 unfold, and Mark talked about last week, he unfaithfully walks away from God and goes down to Egypt to a place God never told him to go. And God lets him. Now, we have to be careful being too critical of Abram. I think even too critical as we read the Bible. It's interesting because we know how the stories end, and, and, and we know um, seemingly better than them, I would have done this. Everything from, I never would have eaten the apple, to, I wouldn't have abandoned Jesus, to, oh, Abram, what an idiot. we got to be careful in being too critical of Abram, because as one pastor said, we have walked away from God from much less than a famine in our lives. And so we look at Abram, we go, okay, I can understand how a man of faith could get in that position. I can understand why he would, even in his own mind, think this makes sense. But in Egypt, we saw that things went from bad to worse. On the way down, he's like, Sarah, you're so beautiful. Hey, I got an idea. Since you're so beautiful, you want to go along with a sinful plan where I'm going to call you my sister and then maybe give you over to someone else to be their wife. Right? Not a good idea. In Egypt, though, she identifies herself as Abram's sister, which was a little bit of half-truth. And she's quickly taken in as one of Pharaoh's future brides. And not only has Abram saved himself by sinfully abandoning his wife, he has now made God's promise of offspring threatened. Right? You're going to have kids, assuming that Sarah's going to be included in that, and now he's given her away to this other man. But God protects Abram from himself and in doing so, he ends up fulfilling his promise to make Abram great. More than likely, God struck Pharaoh's house with some kind of STD that clued him in on the problem. It was a protective thing. He goes to Abram and says, what have you done? And from the mouth of a pagan king who does not believe in the same God and believes in many others, through the mouth of a pagan king, God rebukes Abram for his sin. And when you have unbelievers admonishing you to be biblical, you know you're in a bad place, okay? God does speak through the mouth of unbelievers to call you back to obedience. And that's exactly what he does to Abram. And he is kicked out of Egypt. He is sent away. And he is sent away very rich, probably as a result of the very big dowry he was paid from the king for his sister. We see that God is faithful. God is 
not faithful to Abram. That's important. He's not faithful to Abram, though Abram is the beneficiary of his faithfulness. He is more faithful to the promises he made to Abram. God is about upholding his integrity, his glory, his faithfulness. And so he will make good on his promises. Time and time again, the Old Testament says, don't forget what I told your fathers, not don't forget your fathers. What I promised them. God is going to be faithful to what he promised. And so, for old, as old as this story is, which is thousands of years old, what we see is that Abram's faith is really not very different than our own today. It's not very different from mine. In one moment, this guy is radically faithful. Does something that we go, wow, what trust, what conviction, what belief that you would leave all these things and go, wow, you are radically faithful in the next moment, radically unfaithful. This is our example of faith that should bring you great comfort. The Bible records not just Abram, but just about every person that works in the mission of God. It records their faithfulness, faithlessness in full color. The man of faith that we see here is also a man of sin. He screws up. He fears, gets scared. He makes bad decisions. He suffers the consequences. But that's what faith is imperfect. Our hope is not in even our quality of faithfulness. It is in God's. And the cross shows us something, if nothing else. The cross shows us that God plans for our failures. That should be the most comforting thing you've ever heard. That God knows you're going to screw up. Knew we would screw up. He planned ahead before the foundation of the world for our failures. And in Genesis 13 here, what we see is God actually even does more than that. Not only does he plan for our failures, I think he actually plans to grow our faith through our failures. So look at Genesis 13. I'm going to read the first nine verses about Abram. He said, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. And now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is it not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take to the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. Let's spend some time there. We see that Abram is going to demonstrate that he has grown from his major screw-up. Genesis 13, as I said, begins with Abram coming out of somewhere that he was never supposed to be in the first place. He leaves Egypt, 
having hurt the ones he loves, embarrassed himself and dishonored God. But despite his faithlessness, God has been faithful and he leaves Egypt and he heads north. And I believe that where he stops, or perhaps where he doesn't, where he stops reveals that Abram has changed. He returns to where he first started. And there he worships God at the first altar that he built when he first entered the land. And what does it mean that he called upon the name of the Lord? What does it mean that he worshipped him? As Abram goes back to the place where it all started, I think it means this. He came before the altar, he made sacrifices before the Lord, and he confessed his sin. He came before the Lord and Abram repented. Abram returned to God and said, I screwed up. I made a mistake. He had gone down to Egypt relying on his own wisdom and hoping that the world would save him from whatever situation he found it in. Now he goes back to start over from the beginning and renew his trust in God's power to save him to declare his conviction and belief in God's promises over the promises of the world. And there's nothing to suggest, if you think about it, that the famine has stopped. He goes back to a place where it's probably still suffering in famine. He goes back to a place where he is going to have to depend upon God to sustain him. It would have been easier, if you think about it, I always like to, to imagine what isn't said, right? It would have been easier to just go somewhere else. Just to forget the bad decisions that were made and, and just kind of put that in the past and, and settle somewhere else, a little more fruitful maybe, a little more guaranteed. Just move on. Just move forward. Forget the past. But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that, I believe, because sometimes... Renewing our faithfulness requires us to stop everything, to go back to where it was hardest first, where it first went wrong, and start over again before we can move forward. Go back into not a halfway confession, not a halfway repentance, not, well, I'll just kind of forget and move forward. No, he goes back to the very beginning, travels all the way back to where it all started, and there he worships and says, I will make it right in every way I can before I move forward. I'm starting over. Now we see very quickly that it's not only Abram's faith that has changed it. His economic situation has changed as well. Living in a land full of sinners, though, I think that verse uh, 7 is very interesting. It kind of is just a little sentence added on to the end of, of verse 7. It says, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. It's kind of weird. But what you see is that you got two people, two who claim to believe in the promises of the one true God. They're surrounded by nations of people who do not believe, pagan nations who worship false gods, and they're the only two that can't get along. That the two believers, so-called believers, have a fight. 
They're arguing. They have conflict with one another. And I would argue that our faith, the faith of, of, of Christians, of true followers of Christ, is proven less through our interactions with the world and tested most certainly through our interactions with one another. That is where our genuine faith is going to come out. That's where it's truly going to be tested. And Abram is tested here. He's very rich. Echoing back to God's promise of greatness more than likely, it says, I believe in verse 6, that they have great possessions. They have become great. Even though Abram was faithless, God was faithful. But when you choose the path of unfaithfulness as a means to prosperity or a means to save yourself, you may actually experience blessing, but because it did not come directly from the hand of the Lord, though all things ultimately do, it turns into a curse. Abram is great, he is rich, Lot is great, he is rich, but now they cannot get along. Lot, and if you read uh, Jewish kind of history and Jewish perspective on this, you'll see that they pretty much view Lot as this freeloading nephew who jumped along by his own initiation on this trip to Canaan. He wasn't necessarily invited, but Abram didn't fight him from coming. He was told to leave his family, but, but Lot came. He has become, as a result of being with Abram, very rich. And now they literally can't fit on the fields that they uh, have agreed to live on so that they have large flocks and their herdsmen are fighting over where they can feed and they're just not getting along. Lot is pretty much a, a parasite, not in a totally negative way, but we see it's pretty negative. He is dependent upon Abram. He has been blessed by Abram, but you will find very quickly he is not grateful to Abram at all. And for a time, it's possible that Lot even believed in the greatness of God's promises. He may have identified with the one true God, but in the course of time, we see now that he begins to be captivated by the greatness of the promises of sin. And you see how Abram deals with this conflict and what it shows about his faith. The last time there was a problem, the last time there was a conflict, the last time things were not going well, he saw it, right? He looked and said, okay, this is a problem. There's a famine. i got to do something. I'm going to take this problem into my own hands and not necessarily take it to the Lord. He sought to control. I'm going to control this. I'm going to control my destiny. And he wanted to control it so much and determine the outcome so much, Abram was willing to sin to do it. That's control. Isn't that all of us? Whether that be just parenting or that be jobs. i got to control this. And so you get to a place where you're even willing to sin so that you can get whatever result you want. In his attempt to control last time versus trusting God, we saw what happened. He led his family away from where God said to settle. He trafficked his wife to an Egyptian king. We later find out when he was down in Egypt, he picked up a slave who would later become his second wife and give birth to a son from whom the whole Islamic nation would come. Not this time. This time, Abram 
opens his hands, and surrenders control of the situation. And he trusts that God is going to fulfill his promise without Abram's help. Right? We always want to help God. You realize God is the one who's called the helper. He helps us. Like, God, let me help you out and control the situation so that you can make good on what you promised because realize you don't have all the power there is. Come on! But that's the way we function. So Abram decides to give Lot the choice, which is pretty risky if you think about it. Some might argue, which they rightfully so, that Abram's he's risking that Lot could choose the land that Abram's promised. But he's being obedient to the command to get rid of his family. Remember, he's not supposed to be with his family. Whatever he's doing, I think that it can be said that Abram is maybe for the first time, at least in a long time, acting in faith. I think he's declaring by willingness to open his hands like this to say, look, I tried to do it on my own before. I tried to control, and I ended up hurting my wife and hurting my family and hurting myself and dishonoring the one true God. So Abram's going to act in belief. He's going to say, I trust God. So Lot, you make the decision. I trust so much, I'm going to give you control. I trust so much that when I screwed up, God gave me back my wife. So even if you pick the land, I figure he'll get it back to me. That kind of surrender. Abram deliberately steps into a place where, okay, God, you're going to have to show up. And that's the very place that most Christians avoid. A place of utter dependence. Man, I'm going to step into this place, and God, if you don't show up, things are going to go bad. He steps deliberately into a place of utter dependence. And we all have that opportunity all the time whenever a conflict comes up. Conflicts are the opportunities to trust God more than we trust ourselves. And that's what Abram is being presented with. There's strife in the family. There's a problem amongst all the people he is leading. And it's an opportunity for him to control or to trust. So we get to verse 10 and we see how Lot chooses. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abram has learned much from his failure in Egypt, but Lot, it seems, has not. Abram is not worried about his greatness anymore, not worried about controlling God's promises anymore. He is trusting that God is great and that God will fulfill his promises. Lot, on the other hand, has a newfound appreciation for greatness. His greatness has gone to his head a little bit. His greatness has made him hunger for more greatness. So when Abram offers the opportunity for Lot to choose, he says, heck yes, I will. As he looks across the land, notice that Lot does not 
take a moment to thank Abram for his provision. He doesn't thank him for the opportunity. He doesn't defer to his authority. You know, Abram, um, the Lord spoke to you, and I've been, you know, basically freeloading you and off of you this whole time, so maybe you should choose. You're, you're the elder. You're my uncle. You're the one that took me when I was an orphan and took care of Like, you go ahead. He doesn't even ask Abram's opinion. He didn't say, Abram, what do you think is best? Lot should say, look, Abram, it's, it's promised to you. I've been blessed to be with you. Um, I am under your authority. What, what do you want to do? Instead, Lot is worldly and fleshly. Lot is ambitious and greedy. Lot is not thinking about Abram. Lot is not thinking about his wife and daughters. Lot is thinking about what is best for himself. He's not thinking about anyone but Lot. And the truth is, are we really any different when given a similar opportunity? We look at Lot again with like, oh, what an idiot. But if we're taken up on the mountain and we're shown this beautiful land and over here it looks like the Garden of Eden. It's like, oh, like, oh that's awesome. Or famine land, right? Full of Canaanites and parasites. Oh, right? It's not really a difficult choice. And the thing about us, what we do is we're like, oh, what an opportunity. What a door the Lord has opened for me. And look at this open door here. I think I'll walk through it. Every open door is not opened by the Lord. That's number one. Number two, every open door is not necessarily a door for you to walk through. Right? So you stand there, but we do that. We're like, oh, well, clearly this is the path of prosperity. So that's what the Lord must want me to walk. Really? Have you looked at the life of Jesus ever? The path that he walked was the most glorious path there was, and that was the path of suffering. And that was the path of service. But we usually go, oh, that's suffering? That's prosperity. It must be of the Lord. Like, no. Not to suggest that the path of suffering or famine is either, but maybe you should ask and not assume. Lot is excited to choose. Lot is presented with an opportunity and he is led by his eyes and not his ears. He's led by what he sees and not by what God has said. And just like Lot, we do the same. We are led more often by our eyes than our ears. We are prone to make very complicated pros and cons list more than we are to read verses or pray. We are more likely to determine what is a benefit to us and measure how it's going to benefit us in the future, benefit our children now, benefit us. We are more interested in what is beneficial than what is actually biblical. Anytime we put anything, whether it be material success, our jobs, recreation, even our health before what God has said in his word, we're in a dangerous place. Lot is not thinking about giving glory to God. He is thinking about getting glory for himself. And what we will see is that it will result in him losing everything. He will lose everything. 
Check out what he does. Three particular things. The Bible says Lot lifted his eyes to see. In the lust of his eyes, Lot saw the beauty of Jordan and that valley, he said, was as magnificent as the Garden of Eden that God planted with his own hands. Now, was it doubtful? But when we want something, oh, oasis, right? He is looking, if you didn't know, at where the plains of Shinar are. And the plains of Shinar are where they first built the Tower of Babel, right? They're building a city to honor themselves with themselves at the center and a tower that would reach to heaven so we could worship ourselves and make our name great. That's where he's looking. And he's not just looking at it, right? He's longing for it. He's seeing the greatness of the cities, the greatness of the land. He's like, oh yeah, lift thy eyes to look at that. And then it says, the Bible says, Lot, verse 11, chose for himself. Well, the wording is so important. He's not interested in what God might have chosen for him, but only what he wants. He's not satisfied with God's provision. He's not satisfied with the boundaries that God has laid out for him. He's not satisfied with what he has been given. He wants what's outside of that. God's provision is unsatisfying. And he is therefore content with living in sin so that he could get whatever he felt was missing. He was content with living in sin so that he could get what he wanted. And then the last thing it says, the Bible says that Lot journeyed east. And east is an interesting recurring theme in Genesis, but also in all the Old Testament. When a rebellious Cain, which was the one of the two first sons of Adam and Eve, when Cain murdered his brother Abel, he was exiled and he was separated from the presence of God and settled in the east of the Garden of Eden. Babel, the tower we talked about, was built in the east. The temple of God was built in such a way that it faced east. So in order to enter the temple of God, you actually had to walk west. Essentially, Lot, is choosing to move away from God's presence, to live apart from God's blessing. By him going east is a declaration of his heart, a revelation of his heart. Lot separated from God and settled in Sodom. He separated from the great God and he settled with what the Bible calls great sinners. Lot trusted himself, he chose for himself, he established himself, a lot of self in there. His greatness had gone to his head and he wanted more greatness for himself. He was not devoted to making God's name great or to blessing others as God had promised Abram, but to making his own name great and to being a blessing or obtaining a blessing for himself. He chose what looked good on paper and not what was good according to the word of God. In the end, we will see this in a couple weeks, his decision to separate from God's people and settle amongst great sinners would destroy his family literally. Lot will end up with a dead wife, drunk, 
sleeping with both of his daughters. The land that he coveted will be scorched by God with fire from the heavens. Lot should have learned from Abram's failure, as we all should. But you know what Lot did? I think something common that we all do when we see someone else's failure. We think, that ain't going to happen to me. That's not going to happen to me. Abram, you, you really screwed up. I got this one. Lot's prideful. So Lot leaves, and Abram's left there on the mountain. I've always wondered what Abram was doing on the mountain there. I kind of think he was sitting there. Last three verses, 14, says this, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Lot chose poorly, but he chose what looked good. The land that God has for you, whatever that peace is, it may not always look best at first. It may not look as good as some of the other land that the unbelievers have, or even some of the believers. But I will say that it is the place of blessing because it's the boundaries that God has given you. Abram is a great man because he has grown through great failure he refused to look with his own eyes when given the opportunity. Instead, he trusts God's words. And I have wondered how he fared after Lot left. Was he like breathing a sigh of relief? Oh, good. Woo! Lot didn't pick Canaan. I think in some ways he may be paralyzed. And what I mean by that, maybe despairing a little bit because like, wow, Lot, man, he looking at his famine land, like, well, it's a nice piece of land he got. He seems like he's really a go-getter, like he really has a plan. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know what's next. Or maybe he's sitting there in fear. Maybe he's sitting on the mountain just kind of scared to take a step. And why would that be? Well, you ever experienced a tremendous failure where you just screwed up royally and you hurt lots of people? how slow that makes you to make another decision like that. And I've wondered if he's fearfully sitting there afraid that he's going to screw up again. And God is so gracious because he shows up and he begins to talk to Abram. And I think quell some of his fears. And what he says mirrors what Lot did, almost identically. What does God say? First thing God tells him, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes and look. Remember Lot had lifted his eyes to see what was on the earth, particularly to the east, all that the world had to offer? And it's very tempting to look that direction. Very tempting. 
Sin makes great promises and there is much to be desired and more than enough to satisfy the senses. But Abram isn't necessarily called look east or look west. I think in a very real way, he is called to look up. Lift your eyes and look. Get your eyes off of the world and look at me, Abram. Get your eyes off of the earth, off of your situation, off of yourself, off of what you can't make sense of, and look at me. Lift your eyes to your heavenly Father. Look to me for wisdom, Abram. Look to me for direction, Abram. Look to me for hope, Abram. Lift your eyes. Don't look down. Look up. But he also is told, this is what I'm going to give you. He tells Aaron to trust what he has chosen for him. Right? What did Lot do? Lot chose for himself. And Abram is told to look all around. See what God has given him. Everything. Including the Jordan Valley that Lot just chose. But in promising this, Abram is given another little insight as to the kind of promise it is. Right? He's told like, look, you're going to have so many kids you're not going to be able to, it'll be like the dust of the earth. If anyone can count the dust of the earth, that's the number of your offspring. Now, Abram will see a son born. You'll see several sons born, but he ain't going to see dust born. He is being asked to trust in a promise that he will never really see fulfilled. And that's why we're typically less likely to pursue or believe God's promises because we're such an instant gratification world. I want to click it and have it. If I read it, I want to experience it now. I mean, we're so instantaneous like with, with this kind of stuff. I can order something online right now, click it, have it like tomorrow. They're like making drones for us. We're like, click, boom, land, you got it. It's like instantaneous. And he tells Abram, look, I want you to believe in something that, that you're never going to see. But I want you to trust me. That you will experience blessing because of it, but man, the blessing's really going to come in the future. He invited Abram to look to the future harvest. And in believing God's provision and believing God, he was choosing to not just trust in God's control, but to trust in God's timing. He will be promised a particular son. His name will be Isaac. And from the point when he has promised that son, it's another 25 years before he comes, or 24. To trust in his promises, which includes his timeline. Lastly, he finally says, get up. Start walking, which seems to imply that he may be sitting there and not moving. Tells Abram to get up and walk through the land. And what had Lot done? Lot had journeyed east, and Abram is really invited to walk west. Lot had walked away from the presence of God, and Abram is invited to walk into and with the presence of God. Abram is not 
to be passive. He's not to be paralyzed. He is to be moving, to walk around in all that God has given him, to live in the promises that God has given him, to worship the one true God. He is fully to enjoy and dedicate every part of his life to God. And for Abram, that was land, and it will eventually be children. For us, it's our homes and our families, and our jobs, and our resources, and our relationships, and our gifts, and, and everything that we enjoy that we have received from the Lord. We are not merely called to possess it and just look at it. Isn't this wonderful? We are to worship God through it. We are to appreciate and value it and thank God for it and dedicate it to the Lord. Abram's grown from his big failure. And we are called to grow from ours. We are called to be a people of faith. And that's not a command to trust in our own strength or our own wisdom or even our own faithfulness. It's an invitation to surrender control of your life for the small decisions and the big ones, to Jesus. Our faith is imperfect. My faith is imperfect. Your faith is imperfect, though we try to pretend it's not. Like Abram, we fail, we fall, we screw up, but our hope is not in our perfect faithfulness, but in Christ's. In order to grow from our failures, we have to lift our eyes. We have to look beyond our past failures, beyond our present temptations, beyond our future plans that we have to have. We have to look beyond what we think our own abilities are needed to create whatever it is we think we want. We have to look beyond our knowledge and what we can figure out, beyond even what we feel. See, the world tells you, yes, that's right. Lift your eyes and just believe in yourself and, and hope for a better tomorrow. God doesn't say that. He tells us to lift our eyes and to look to Jesus. To receive a perfect Savior and to hope for a perfect eternal life beyond this. The unfailing love of God, the unfailing faithfulness of God in Christ is what sustains us and grows us, especially in our failures. Hebrews chapter 12, which is the chapter right after the great chapter of faith, which lists, oh, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, all these people, including Abraham, says, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, faithful witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, there's the beginning, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, which though it looked like an epic failure, was anything but. Despising the shame is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. 
we must all lift our eyes and look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And it's important that last part of those verses, which we like the beginning of those, but that last part, the founder and perfecter of our faith is no longer on the cross. The founder of our faith is seated at the right hand of God, meaning he is alive. He has risen from the dead. What looked like the greatest failure was the greatest victory. And I was struck by a quote from, not Tim Keller, I know you're thinking that, Kathy Keller, his wife. And it just happened to come across Facebook or something as I was putting the sermon together. And here's what she said. If you think about it in the context of the resurrection and our failures, it's a beautiful statement. She said, while God may not protect you from every bad thing, including our screw-ups, while he may not protect you from every bad thing that might, has, or could happen to you, ultimately, through resurrection, you are safe. God does not protect us from things that harm us. He protects us as we go through them to the other side of the resurrection where real hope and real happiness lives. Ooh. Our faith fails, but God intends for us to grow through these failures. And like Abraham, we all messed up. And we all, at one time or another, ignored God's word and thought to, we could control and figure it out, and we all walk away from God in an attempt to really govern our own lives. But like Abram, we all have a chance to come to God's altar and confess our sins to God who already knows to be forgiven by God, to be blessed by God, and to be led by God again. More than anything else, the cross shows us that God has planned before the foundation of the world for our failure. But the resurrection reveals that God does more than just plan for our failures. He plans to grow our faith through our failures. And so I close with this. For some of us, for those who find themselves right now failing down in Egypt, I invite you to surrender control and return home to Jesus. Start again. Start again. And for those who are being tempted by looking at the greatness of the Jordan Valley, I invite you to take your eyes off of the earth and lift your eyes to look at the greatness of heaven with Jesus. And for those few of us, which may be more than a few, who are still standing on the mountaintop, afraid to live, afraid because you screwed up royally that I'm not, I might make another mistake. I won't dare take another step until a hand comes down and tells me exactly what to do. I'd encourage you to not just lift your eyes, but lift your legs and start walking with Jesus who says, do not 
fear, for I will never leave you nor forsake you, even when you fail, which I know you will. I'd invite you as we worship, as we sing our joy of being loved and saved despite our failures, I invite you, for those who are in Christ, to partake of a tangible expression of that confession. Coming to the table every week is not, hey, I got it figured out. Coming to the table is like, I know I fail. But Christ knows that too. And he didn't. So I will trust in his perfection and acknowledge my own imperfection and live in the joy of my salvation. Let's pray.